Okay, cool. Well, I could. <laughs> okay, I see you again. Uh, well, with any luck, we can we can get some of this stuff edited out later. But um, I am now joined by um, everybody's favorite Kurdish British. Uh, university professor, Warhammer enthusiast, uh, I believe the, uh, you know, inspiration for, for Laszlo uh, on what we do in the shadows, uh, certainly a podcaster and political commentator, uh, Mean Gene Bajalan. How you doing today? Oh, no, Gene. Oh, no. There we go. I'm back. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, good. I don't know what's going on. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm doing good. How are you doing, Ben? <laughs> I am doing pretty decently. Uh, I uh, I just got my, um, you know, I just got my uh, t- uh, TV set up in, uh, in my bedroom. So if I ever have a chance to stop podcasting and shit and actually watch something, you know, I'll be doing good. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I hope you, I hope your television is fruitful. Uh, to you in the extreme. <laughs> yeah, actually, so I, I have, um, yeah, this, this was a, uh, um, I, I actually already had one set up in the living room, but the, uh, my, uh, one of my neighbors, uh, had like a, an old one, you know, they asked if I wanted. So, uh, so yeah, I just got that set up, but, uh, I have actually been, I, I will tell you this, this probably, uh, anybody who doesn't have this information, this probably tells you exactly how old I am, uh, that this is the particular memory lane I'm going down right now. But the last couple of nights, I've only got about half an hour of it, you know, a night before I, I started crashing because I was writing or doing other things until pretty late. But, uh, what I have been watching to the extent that I've been watching anything is, is I've been watching about half an hour of a time of the uh, Battlestar Galactica miniseries. Oh, it's pretty good. The, uh, the old, uh, no, no, no. Oh no. The, yeah. oh, oh, the original. No, 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 no. The, the, the remake, the, uh, that, so uh, they did the, um, uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, this is the, yeah, this is the remake. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 2004, which man, it, 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 it shows in many ways that it's, uh, it's from 2004. It's, it's very much of its time, but, uh, but, but I, I love it and I have a lot of nostalgia for that show and, uh, and, and I'm excited about revisiting it. Oh yeah. I'm, I bet you are. It's, uh, I, I think I watched it a couple of years ago in a whole rewatch, which it was pretty enjoyable. Uh, some, you know, it was a, it was a bit of a sea change in science fiction, uh, genre really because you know you'd had Star Trek up to then and 90s Star Trek has a very kind of distinctive style and look to it and uh, Battlestar Galactica kind of moved to this more I don't know what West Wing plus a kind <laughs> of war on terror military um, you know military storyline and what I always found quite interesting is if you look at like older science fiction like the soldiers they're all just like normal people you know, uh, they have like, normal bodies, but whereas like in Battlestar Galactica, everybody was like super like working out all the time and buff and looked like 
people who had engaged in military action. So I, I always have a soft spot for that show. It went off the rails when the writer's strike went on and they didn't have anyone writing any decent scripts. So I think they kind of like the end was ridiculous and it kind of ruined oh, things a little bit for Star Galactica. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was, a, it was a fun ride, even if the destination was stupid. And Gaius Balta is a hilarious character, especially in that first season where you <laughs> don't know if he's, if he's, like, seeing things in his head or if it's real. <laughs> but uh, that guy, is a, he's a good actor, a funny actor. He's been in a, a bunch of stuff, uh, and he always makes me chuckle. Yeah, totally. Uh, oh, so the writer's strike came at the very end of the show? Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why the scripts were all all over the place was because that last season was at the same time as the writer's strike. I'm sure everybody is kind of aware who was around at that time. There was all kinds of chaos in the television world. And, you know, the, the whole, um, you know, the whole, the whole TV shows either were cancelled or the people coming in to write the scripts were really, let's just say, they weren't sending their best. Yeah, no, I really believe that. That That is interesting. Um, I, yeah, Silver Harlow in the chat uh, encapsulates my feelings about it looking back on it, which is uh, BSG remake was good. Too bad it only lasted three years. Then with emphasis, only three years. <laughs> Since, um, yeah. Yeah, they the end everything up up through the end of uh, of season three, uh, the uh, I, I you know I mean the there's our... a lot there's a lot to be said about having somebody with a singular vision creating a TV show because obviously with TV shows by committee they can go they can go they can be fine but they can go off the rails and I think. You know, I have a big soft spot for Babylon 5, which despite yeah. the, the lackluster acting by some members of the cast and some of the shoddy um, sets that we used, it had a cohesive story that went all the way through four seasons. And that's because the, the guy who wrote it, he knew at the beginning of the show where the show, in a broad sense, was going in the end. Whereas I think Battlestar Galactica suffered from what I think of as the lost effect where it's like, Ooh, we're going to have like, <laughs> we're going to have a mystery box, which is, I think what, uh, what's his name? That director who ruined star was JJ um, Abrams talks about a mystery box. But if when you open the mystery box, there's only another mystery box after a while, the mystery box gets kind of tired. So I think they didn't really know where they were going to go exactly with that show. And so at the end it was just like, the silliest ending because there was totally. like no yeah. no vision for the beginning it's like let's have all these cool signs and portents but if those signs and portents you haven't thought about what they mean then they're just going to end up disappointing yeah uh yeah i mean the original um like opening credit sequence i remember you know uh included you know it was like had this these little messages over the screen, you know, the Cylons were created to blah blah blah, but then they rebelled, blah blah blah. There are many copies. They have planned, and it's like, oh no, it turned out no, they didn't, uh, or at least the writers did it. But um, but yeah, they, they had a plan, or at least some of them had a plan to bring Gaius Balta onto the spaceship and have three ways with him. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that, that was about the level of the plan. But the plan. yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, th I think everything you say is correct. I, I, um, 
I mean, the and I mean, it is funny because I'm still like, even as we're talking about this, I'm obeying our dumbass cultural convention in 2023 of never saying anything about plot developments in any work of fiction ever, even if it's like some show that's been over for 200 years. Uh, but, um, uh, but, uh, but I guess I will follow this dumb convention anyway that stops us from, from being able to, uh, talk about, uh, talk about works of fiction. Uh, the end of season three, uh, ends with a bang. And I know some people thought it was silly. I loved it, but then it went immediately off the rails and they came back because it sort of ended at like max, like mystery box, cool shit. And, uh, and then, uh, and then there was, you know, there was kind of nowhere to go. Although that that is good the, about the that is good to know about the writer strike. If I stick with it, uh, I might actually just uh, see if I can, you know, exercise the self discipline to uh, to to stop at the end of season three. Um, so so I'm actually ending on a you know ending on a high note. Um, it was, but it is like the stuff I'm watching now. I haven't seen since. Um, like the first couple seasons of Battlestar Galactica, I remember I didn't watch them live, but I watched them. Um, I watched them long enough ago in like the late two thousands that I was watching them on DVDs from Netflix. Oh dear! There you go. That's uh, that's showing your age right there, Doctor Burgess, old, <laughs> old man philosopher. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I've been. I what have I been watching? I watched Peripheral, which is oh, I don't know that. It's a, it's a new Amazon TV series based on a William Gibson novel. It's pretty enjoyable. Uh, it's got a little bit of, I wouldn't say time travel, but communications between time periods. Okay. Uh, it's got a little bit of, uh, it's, it's, it's set in future London and near future South Carolina, I want to say. But uh, I haven't. I've enjoyed that show. I thought it was fun. Um, Future England is ruled by the triumvirate of the kleptocracy, which are basically the Russian oligarchs who all fled to England following the Putin diaspora. (laughs) uh, A a evil cyberpunk corporation that researches things called the Research uh, Institute and the Metropolitan Police. So it's a kind of a cool, um, very enjoyable, I guess, uh, spy thriller. I believe the guy who created it was, uh, well, it's a William Gibson novel. William Gibson is the kind of uh, inventor of the cyberpunk genre. Yep. Um, yeah, him and Sterling, right? Right, him and Bruce Sterling. And, you know, it's very much William Gibson in the sense that the book is a kind of noir story with a cyberpunk skin on it. But the TV series was, I think, directed by the guy who did the Bourne identity. So it has a kind of slick look to it. And, yeah, it's it's well acted and, you know, well produced. Some nice characters. Uh, there were some issues with it. But, you know, these days, if you can get some good TV, you know, why not? Because I was not pleased with the new Witcher series. I thought that was terrible. And they even had Michelle Yeoh in it, and I really like Michelle Yeoh, but no, they couldn't save that show. I'm <laughs> so yeah, Peripheral would be my recommendation if you're looking for some enjoyable science fiction to to binge nice. watch. Yeah, so I, nice. Yeah, when I was looking uh, the couple nights ago when I started PSG again, I was, um, you know, I did almost 
uh, virtuously seek out something I hadn't seen before. Uh, you know, I was looking at, you know, like the expanse, which I've never seen, but, um, but well, I was the like, expanse. what's the expanse. that? The expanse. I can't recommend the expanse enough. I, um, I actually read the books first. I went, when I was doing my PhD, uh, I went with my family to Wales and we all stayed in one of these, uh, cottages like, a you know, with my family and I found the first book in the expanse series in the, you know, books that guests had left there for people. And I basically sat there and instead of writing as like, <laughs> a writer, I just read that first book and, you know, I was hooked. It was a really enjoyable uh, book. And I, you know, I finished the whole, it's nine books now, but I finished all nine books and the TV series it's definitely an adaption of the books, but uh, the creators of the books were involved in that adaption. And also the way that they adapted it to the TV show made sense, it, you know, in the way that, you know, sometimes a book can be really unfilmable. So they made certain changes to The Expanse, which um, really, you know, streamlined the plot for television and did a good job. They have interesting characters. And uh, one of the things I really appreciate about them is that The Expanse does the kind of quote-unquote woke, woke uh, culturally, cultural future multiculturalism and stuff. But it doesn't in a very like intelligent and enjoyable way. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. like it's being shoehorned in there. It feels like this is a society in the future where, you know, people's morals and ideas and identities, like, they've totally changed. Like, there are loads of LGBTQ characters. There are people from different ethnicities, you know, lots of different uh, things. And it's like a very, it's a very, it's like, it's how to do a kind of diverse future science fiction without making it feel like it's been tacked on as a kind of quote unquote virtue signal, but rather it's like really deeply integrated into the plot in a kind of, uh, in the wiring rather than in a superficial sense. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, might uh okay, so, so yeah. Should, I would check that out. I would give it I'd give it a whirl. Yeah, I did I did very seriously consider that the other night. But that's like ah fuck it, I just want to revisit two thousand four. Uh <laughs> but um Don't we it, all wish we could revisit two thousand and four though? Uh in many ways. Uh not in all ways, but in many ways. Um but uh but Zooming from 2004 to 2023, I mean, before we start taking calls, I, I, I do just want to say, because it's like, this is all stuff that's, you know, happened in the last few hours. Uh, have you uh, have you been following Brazil? No, I haven't seen what's happened in the last few hours. I've been playing Star Wars uh, tabletop miniature games for the last couple of hours. So what's happened in Brazil? Uh, they basically, they, they, uh, they're doing their own January 6th. Um, it's, uh, it like, it's sort of, I think maybe both more and less serious than, than, uh, than ours was it's, it's less in the sense that, you know, Lula was already inaugurated. Uh, and, and in fact, nobody was at the, the, you know, presidential palace when they were, you know, storming it. Um, but, uh, it's. Uh, but it's more because there seems to be some complicity from like a state police uh, 
that uh, that 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 should have been that should have been on this. <laughs> uh, so uh, so so that's very worrying. And and Lula has has declared uh, uh, federal intervention uh, in that you know that state to 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 clamp down on this. And you know, and it's which I guess is also a pretty serious step. Um, I saw a good uh, a good post from uh, Felix Biederman uh, saying. Uh, you know, on the Jan 6 comparison, it says January 6th was when there's no James Baker to call. January 8th was when you don't even know what a James Baker is. Hmm. Well, I mean, I can't, I'm actually, I'm kind of both surprised and not surprised because I figured this, this kind of thing, you know, if it was going to happen in Brazil, would have happened earlier. It seems that, you know, a lot of this, far right mobile uh, you know this a lot of the right wing mobilization that takes place now is basically never accept defeat and if you're defeated just say that you were cheated and you know obviously in in Brazil uh, I would have thought that given the history of the country given Bolsonaro's connections to the military and all that kind of stuff we might have seen something more similar but he seems to have just you know, I think he went off. I think I saw a picture of him in Publix in Florida, but, <laughs> which is hilarious to me because I I lived in uh, Miami for six and a half years and Atlanta for a few years more recently. Fried so. chicken in Publix, I'll exactly. So, but um, yeah, I mean, familiar like, experience. This seems like a bit late, but you never know. I mean, in a country like Brazil, where the kind of quote unquote bourgeois democratic institutions are less rooted perhaps and you know there is a history of this kind of uh military intervention in politics in this very overt way and things like that you you never know how these things can escalate but you know i guess we'll uh, i guess you know there's an x factor in here because i i don't think the united states is going to intervene in the way that it might have done in the cold war to remove someone like lula if anything uh, they look to lula as a kind of uh guy that they can deal with because Bolsonaro was good buddy buddies with the, the uh, better noir of the of American liberalism, Donald Trump. So, you know, the, I guess the international um, confluence of forces does not necessarily look good for the far-right coalition in, um, in Brazil, but I guess down the line, I mean, I'm not an expert on the country, who knows how things could change. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I just wrote something for for Jackman about Brazil, where uh, a, a line I was very partial to, but that ended up being cut in editing, is uh, that they always do that. They always cut the coolest line in your Jacobin article. I know. Oh, right? Well, they do it to me. They do it to me. I have a cool line, and it's like the one line they're like, "Yeah, we're going to take this out." I was like, "Come on, man, that was a good line." Yeah, exactly. So, so, so mine was that uh, Bolsonaro is often referred to as the Trump of the tropics, but honestly, uh, Bolsonaro makes Trump look like Elizabeth Warren. Um, you know, because you know, if you think about like the, uh, I mean, like literally, like when when Lula was uh, was voting, uh, like like infamously when he was in the Chamber of Deputies and he voted to impeach Dilma, he uh, he dedicated his vote in a speech to uh, the the head of Brazil's secret police under the dictatorship when, uh, when, when Dilma was, uh, was tortured. Uh, that's, uh, you know, like, touching. what's that? Very touching. You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you know, and he's, he's obviously, in fact, one of the reasons this is so, you know, like, like I actually think this is, 
probably not nearly as bad as, as there was reason, some reason to worry that it would be, uh, you know, cause like one reason to, to worry that if they did their Gen 6, it'd be much more serious than ours is that Brazil has these real serious, um, right-wing paramilitaries that the, the Bolsonaro family is, is closely linked with that like, you know, really do like control territory, like gangs and, you know, assassinate people and stuff like that. But I will say, at least from the sense I've been able to get so far, this strikes me as um, much more like uh, as much more Jan six, like, and much, much less uh, March on Rome, like uh, at least so far. I mean, like, actually I just saw a picture on Twitter of like, they, they, they seem to have got their own Q shaman. He, uh, He's like dressed. Uh, I'll, I'll drop it in the oh, chat. Can't do a protest without Q Shaman these days. I mean, it's all clownish until it isn't. Yeah, you know, fair. It's all it's all pretty ridiculous until they actually take power. Because you know, I think a lot of people. I mean, maybe maybe I'm overthinking things, but I think a lot of people, you know, in the uh, you know have you know seen that. John Hurt 1984 movie and they assume like that's what dictatorship looks like, that's what authoritarianism looks like, That's what, uh, but like it's a lot more like Death of Stalin really, you know, it's kind of ridiculous and everybody knows <laughs> it's ridiculous everybody knows it's ridiculous, people don't really so there's like fear, but the you know, the way, the, the things that happen if you just tell them, they're almost comically unbelievable I remember somebody telling me a story in Iraq, like I had, I don't know if it's 100% tr uh, true, but, um, you know, Uday Hussein had like the leading families of Baghdad's kids at a party and they were all having a party and they served turkey and some, one of the guests said, I don't like turkey. So he like pissed all over the turkey and forced them all to eat it. And it's Jesus like, Christ. it's like, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but you know, that's the kind of things people, uh, uh, you know, people would say. And then it'd be like, oh, yeah. And also he used to fly around and rape women in a super helicopter. And it's like, well, that sounds pretty horrible. But, you know, making some rich kids eat turkey with piss on sounds funny. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all fair. funny until it isn't. Uh, yeah. No, that's that's fair. That's uh, that, I think there's there's a lot in the world that uh, that sort of works as a bumper sticker slogan for right now. Um, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, I, I do, as I said, if anybody wants to call in, I, I do want to open it up to that in, um, uh, in, in just a moment, but, um, you know, since, uh, since you have not, uh, since you have not been on, uh, for, for a minute, uh, you know, I like, I want to switch over from, uh, from, uh, Latin America to, um, uh, to Eastern Europe. Uh, how are we doing on World War Three? Oh, on World War Three, I mean, I, I honestly, I don't know. I mean, one of the problems with old World War Three that we're following these days is there's so much disinformation and there's so much propaganda out there. Unless you're really following it closely, it becomes quite hard, like in a very concrete way, to understand the precise dynamics on the battlefield, what all these battlefield maneuvers mean, you know, kind of... So in terms of the actual progression of the war, it's, it seems to me as a kind of stalemate. I'm still kind of skeptical that 
you know, Ukraine could drive the Russians completely out of that country. But at the same time, you know, Russia is a big country with large resources. I, I feel like, you know, on both sides of this discussion, you'll have people going like, you're just in a fantasy. Russia is crushing these people. Uh-huh. It seems it doesn't seem to be true. But then the other side no. is like, the Ukrainians will, you know, be marching on Moscow. And it's like, I don't know about that. I mean, like, even if they have weapons, if you don't have, like, manpower left to fight those with those weapons, that seems quite difficult. I actually know somebody here in Springfield who, I mean, he's a he's a quite a right-wing fellow, He, but he travels around the world, you know, doing medical, you know, like going to war zones and doing medical stuff. You know, he's like very much gone, you know, Putin and China are evil and America has to bleed, uh, you know, Russia dry. But, you know, even he's like, well, you know, the Russians aren't doing great, but, you know, it's not like the Ukrainians, you know, the Ukrainians are having like way more success than people thought they would have. People thought they would collapse, but he goes, they still, you know, they still have manpower problems and, you know, not everything goes the way they are. It's like, I guess, I guess, uh, so uh, we, we've, it looks like, at, at least for now, we have a kind of stalemate, but who knows what will happen in the spring? Because I assume in the springtime will be when you see new offensives, whether those offensives are from the Russians or those offensives are from the uh, Ukrainians. So, you know, you have this like winter period where there's a kind of lull in the fighting, but, um, you know, come March, April, you know, it doesn't seem like, doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere and it doesn't seem like anyone has a, has a reason to go to the negotiating table. I read, you know, for example, France seems to be moving to supply uh, heavier uh, weaponry to Ukraine, light tanks, etc. I mean, you know, shipping weapons is one thing. You've got to train people on those weapons as well, and that takes time. But yeah, I, I mean, I do wonder, like, because as you said, I mean, you know, it was a very widely shared assumption that uh, that Ukraine would would you know collapse, and you know the Russians would be marching on Kiev. Uh, which, uh, and when I say widely shared assumption, I don't just mean among like you know <laughs> podcasters or posters. I mean like um, you know, I mean the the CIA. Uh, evacuated everybody from from Ukraine at one point because because they're like well they're clearly about to be occupied uh, and I think that maybe didn't happen as far as I can tell I mean you know without claiming to be anything approaching an expert I mean like for like couple reasons one is just that the United States you know other countries but primarily the United States has been willing to you know top up uh, Ukraine's entire military budget many times over at this point. Um, but the other is just that, uh, that, you know, like the Russian military is incredibly incompetent that if they just like had their supply chains in order, uh, you know, they might've actually, you know, like they might've actually, you know, for all the good it would have done them. I mean, they would be facing like a horrific counterinsurgency, right. You know, war right now, but like, um, the, you know, like they, they might've made it to Kiev at, at the, at the beginning. It's, it's just, I assume like everything else in Russian society, it's been hollowed out by like decades of like weird, like chaotic gangster corruption. Well, um, you know, just in the, in the lead up to the Ukraine war, we had a, a, a scholar and a friend of mine, Harun Yilmaz and Harun Yilmaz, um, he's Turkish, but he wrote his doctoral thesis on a comparative study 
of Soviet-era nation-building in Ukraine, Azerbaijan, and um, uh, uh, Kazakhstan. So he speaks Russian, Ukrainian, uh, Azerbaijani, Turkish, Kazakh. You know, he knows the languages. And he made the wrong prediction for the right reasons. Because uh. he was, he his prediction was like, oh, no, this is all bluster. Because, you know, the high command in Russia, Putin, they understand they have... They have a bullet, but they, they, you know, they have a gun, but they only have one bullet, and you know, they don't want to waste that bullet. And if you look at previous military operations that uh, Russia had taken in the former USSR, uh, including in Kazakhstan just prior to the Ukraine war, these were generally quick operations with very clear uh, objectives. So in Georgia, it was to secure the uh, uh, independence of certain provinces uh, in Kazakhstan. They were intervening to support one faction over another within the uh, Kazakh political lead. And so his prediction was like, oh, no, they, you know, those were quick operations. Ukraine, you know, it's going to be a huge operation. They're going to end up fighting in the streets of Kharkiv. This is something that the Russian Russians won't do because, you know, they, they have a they understand their capabilities and the risks. And he was wrong. But, you know, his but he was wrong for the uh, for the right reasons. Of he viewed this war as going to be a was going to be a, a, a much more difficult task than you know sending so uh, a, a lightning force into Georgia, which is a small country, uh, uh, or into Kazakhstan uh, as well. And in terms of uh, yeah, so so you know I think a lot of people out there at the you know, outside of the war, you know, I think a lot of the skepticism was because, like, this just seems like a crazy, a crazy gamble. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, Putin, at least Putin seemed to be uh, someone who wouldn't gamble unless the odds were entirely in his favor. And perhaps it was just a complete miscalculation about uh, the capacities of Ukraine, which, you know, obviously has been rearmed to a significant degree, both under the Obama and the Trump uh, administration, which has an armed forces that has been engaged in, you know, that it's not a green armed forces. They've been fighting these breakaway provinces for an extended period of time. And it seemed, I think, to many that, you know, Putin, an invasion would make no logical sense because Putin yep. was already in like a really good position in the Ukraine uh, that he was uh, that, you know, he secured his objectives, but, you know, there's a, there was always a kind of contradiction in, in the Russian policy, uh, uh, policy towards Ukraine, of course, because, you know, if you, even if you go back to the early two thousands and the, you know, the, the pro Western movements that uh, took place in that period, you know, Ukraine was divided between a kind of eastern orientated uh, block and a western orientated block, uh, but they were quite finely balanced against one another. But uh -huh. by sheer by taking, you know, some of the most pro-Russian regions away from uh, the Ukraine, that like fundamentally altered the balance of political power within that country, giving a kind of western orientated. Um, uh, uh, block a decisive advantage in the electoral field. And so, you know, 
there was there was this kind of problem fa- facing Putin. He was in a good position. He controlled critical areas, the Crimea, which had a, has a, an important military, um, uh, uh, you know, it has strategic value for Russia. It's the home of their fleet. It's also a very well-located peninsula. And also these uh, centers of mining and heavy industry in the east of the Ukraine. But, you know, the cost of that to him from the outset was this disruption of the existing balance of power between Eastern and Western orientated political forces in the country. And so, you know, that Ukraine after 2014 would increasingly uh, tilt towards the West um, seems to have been an inevitable outcome of it. And it strikes me that, you know, Putin perhaps thought that he could have his cake and eat it. He could, uh, he could uh, both maintain a military foothold within Ukraine, annex certain territories, while at the same time ensuring that a rump Ukraine would remain within the, uh, within the Russian uh, yeah. economic yeah. and political yeah. sphere. And by invading as well, I think one of the important things that people often miss is that you know ethnic and national identity, they aren't given. They're a fluid process. And this kind of liminal... Russian slash Ukrainian identity that might have prevailed amongst certain segments of the population has now kind of uh, it's been the, the the ideological frontiers and the idea uh, the lines of identity have hardened because because of the process of war. It served as a, a, a as a nation building uh, vehicle for the Ukrainians to build. A, an identity that is not only, you know, distinct from the Russian identity, but is uh, uh, counterposed to the Russian identity. That is, sees the Russian identity as a kind of uh, accident, existential threat, rather than seeing themselves as, you know, being a fraternal nation with a lot of shared cultural links and shared heritage, which, of course, Ukrainians and Russians do have. So I think... This has been, you know, this has been a, 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 I think this has been a mess for the Russians. But I also think, you know, there's been a very heavy cost to the West, especially in terms of energy and food prices uh, uh, by this war, uh, by this war. You know, people can complain about it, but it makes perfect sense to me that, you know, Russia is going to make it difficult for the, for those people supplying Ukraine with arms. Uh, It's like, that's just real politique. So uh, I think it's not been great for Russia, but I don't think it's been great for anything. I think this war in general is like a profoundly negative development. I think the way that the narratives are shaping up, I think the Ukraine war has served as a proxy for a kind of political sorting that is based on a deeper political divisions. But I think, yeah, I think this has exposed like so many fault lines. And, you know, frankly, one of the only countries that seems to have behaved at least semi-responsibly in this whole crisis has been China, which has reasons both to be, you know, glad to see a pro-American regime, you know, get pummeled, but also is quite reticent about, you know, countries invading other countries and trying to change international frontiers, which has led them to have a kind of more balanced approach 
to to the issue whether it's you know it's not out of the goodness of their heart, but it's out of their kind of more conservative geopolitical interests in stability. Yeah, right. I mean, clearly they, uh, as much as they might like to see the West get uh, get knocked out a peg, uh, you also get the sense that they're like very nervous about you know, global instability and, and uh, borders being messed with and, you know, and all that stuff, you know, that they're... I mean, this really puts a damper on Belt, Belt and Road. It makes it harder for them to disentangle Europe from the United States. I mean, it's single-handedly, this war has revitalized uh, NATO in a very concrete sense. And, you know, ultimately... Um, it just doesn't seem to, I just don't see any plus sides to anything in this war, it seems. And, you know, for the Ukrainians, what's the future of Ukraine? We're going to have like a very right wing, uh, rump Ukrainian state, perhaps. And then, you know, if you have a kind of parts of, uh, Ukraine that become part of Russia, you're going to see hyper exploitation there as well. Um, so, you know, it just, it just, the Ukrainians are just really going to be suffering under uh, this war, which strikes me as being like, you know, completely unnecessary. I mean, a lot of the discourse from certain elements of the left is like how this, oh, this was the, the uh, Putin was forced into this war. Yeah, no, that's, that is, that's fucking stupid. Uh, there's like, there's sort of, I don't know. I mean, I mean, my, my feeling is like, I either see that right i mean there's this sort of um you know brain dead tanky line that like somehow you know like somehow nato uh you know like forced putin to do this you know that he was just like you know he he was he was just sitting in his you know bunker in moscow minding his own business and they somehow made him do this uh you know which it's like look it's it's one thing to say that states are well advised to um to to take into account you know the the interests and behavior of of other states you know and and making their calculations and that you know and that like uh and that some of you know the west behavior in ukraine was provocative or that they you know or or that like um or or that uh that like continuing to sort of say the someday in the future we want ukraine to to be in nato uh was um you know, was, uh, was provocative that it was something that was sort of, you know, guaranteed to inflame Russian nationalism. That's all fine. That's all true, but nobody made them do this. Uh, they, uh, they did not have to do this. this and, it, and and the very same people who are talking like that are often people who are saying on the lead up to the war, this is just a lie. There's never going to be a war. And, yeah, yeah. uh, you know, on yeah, the flip and, side, and suddenly when it happens, you know, that they, they made them do it, but it's like, but like but the other know, thing too is, is like, you know, okay, so it's like that's fucking stupid. Like it was, it was an incredibly irrational thing to do. They were not only not forced to do it; they would have been much better off if they hadn't done it. But also, on the other hand, you know, you get like all of these sort of uh, Ukrainian flag and Twitter bio libs, uh, and and you know, neocons uh, who will who will say, "Well, this was this this happened because of this like Putin's like grand plan because he was uh, because." because he's like ideologically committed to rebuilding the Russian empire. Cause they don't recognize, 
you know, Ukraine as a, as a separate people, because if you read this, you know, this paper they wrote in 2019 or whatever the fuck, it's like, no, that's, that's pretty dumb also. Right. Like, like, I mean, like the, the liberal, I mean, in terms, especially in the United States, but also in Britain as well, this is all like coming, the coming together of a kind of coherent discourse that unites both domestic and foreign policy for liberals. And that is, you know, that you're fighting fascism at home, fascism abroad, and fascism uh, uh, behind the curtain of this growing political right uh, across uh, the Western world is, you know, the puppet master, Vladimir Putin, the KGB agent. And so any attempt to kind of provide any kind of historical analysis and say like, well, you know, if one of the reasons you have this like far right Russian nationalism and this kind of revanchism is precisely because of the policies taken by the West, you know, and whether, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, where the country was like barbarized by the Washington boys or whether it's, you know, um, these, uh, you know, this kind of like policy towards uh, Ukraine, you know, that's kind of all created a, 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 a situation where this could happen. Uh, if you say anything like that, it's like, oh, it's that's Putin apologetics. But, you know, even like, I don't know, uh, when you learned about World War one, uh, two, that's uh, high school. They told, I'm sure they the told you. The Treaty of Versailles, you know, like helped lead to it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and if you, it, it, I mean, like, would it, would it be ridiculous to say that, oh, if you say that the Treaty of Versailles helped promote the Second World War, you're a Hitler apologist? That makes absolutely no uh, uh, no yeah, sense. Yeah, there's, 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 this, cool. there's this rampant conflation of, of causation and, uh, and justification that, you know, that if you if you say like other actors did things that made it more likely it was, you know, the reckless that they have a, that like, there's a, uh, that there's a sort of comprehensible, you know, path of cause and effect leading to this happening. Of course that doesn't justify it. I mean, it's like, that's literally the equivalent of saying that if you think that Al Qaeda's motivations were any more complicated than they hate us for our freedom, then you must really be all in favor of massacring office workers in New York. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, so I think, uh, but I think there's this very uh, Manichaean kind of view of the world developing amongst liberals, which is in many ways indistinguishable from neoconservatism that provides this kind of through, uh, through line for understanding politics in our world, right? And because, sadly, uh, left-wing politics is very often, rather than leading political discourses, tailing that discourse, I think that those kind of discourses that are both on the liberal right and the liberal left, both amongst Republicans and amongst Democrats, I think that gets echoed in left-wing circles except with kind of different justifications where on one hand you have certain elements of the left who rallied to this like anti-imperialism, uh, anti-war, um, pro-Putin's uh, doing an anti-imperialism discourse yeah. on one side. And on the other side, people who basically use, talk about the principle of national self-determination and use that as a kind of justification for a kind of blank check uh, towards the, uh, you know, 
towards arming Ukraine to defend themselves. And and if you disagree with that, you're ignoring Ukrainian voices. So yes. it's like, so it's like, I mean, like, look, I've said this to you before. I think, Ben, I I don't know. It's like as a as a Kurdish person, you know, you know, with Rojava and stuff. Like, one thing America could do would be to give. Uh, Kurds a ton of weapons so that they can shoot down Turkish helicopters. I don't think that's going to be a good thing or do anything, right? I think that's just going to lead to more human suffering. And yeah, you know, maybe some pro-Kurdish people and Kurdish people living in the West will get some catharsis when they see dead Turkish soldiers uh, getting draped uh, in flags and and paraded around the cities of Turkey. Uh, uh, But like, it's not going to help anything. I would much rather if the United States would be involved is to kind of broker some kind of uh, peace where, uh, you know, it's not going to be everything that Kurds would want. It's not going to be everything that anybody would want. But, you know, I think it would be more humane and useful to do that rather than, you know, pinning your, uh, mm-hmm. you know, having this, what is it? What is it? Deontological morality. Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, this is the, um, I mean, this was the funniest thing to be back in April or whatever when, um there was this round of uh, of like social media noticing and getting furious about the fact that Noam Chomsky uh, had uh, exactly what anybody who'd ever paid attention to anything he'd ever said uh, would think that he would say about this, you know, which was, which was just, you know, kind of along the lines we've been saying, you know, very condemnatory of the Russian invasion, but also, also very eager to see de-escalation and peace negotiations. And I saw people say, well, he would never say that, you know, the Palestinians, you know, should compromise, you know, for the sake of peace. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Yes, he would. Uh, like, you know, the guy, the guy is a longstanding supporter of, of a two state solution that would in fact be incredibly unsatisfying, you know, but, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's. I mean, it, it it is a kind of tragedy. Uh, yeah. I mean, like I just view this as a kind of tragedy. Totally. And, 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 and I was going to say, like earlier, like I think that like there's a there's a sort of I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, like what always seemed to be like the obvious read of Putin's motivations, which was neither that. Um, neither that he had a grand plan to rebuild the Russian empire. And if, you know, and if, and if he'd, you know, and like, if he'd taken, you know, and if he'd taken Ukraine, you know, the dominoes would have fallen so quickly that, you know, there'd be like Russian troops marching on Paris or whatever. It was neither that nor, um, you know, like NATO forced him to invade. Uh, It's, it's just like, I don't know. Just think of him as a Sopranos character. Like they're one of those sort of like dangerous semi-comic relief Sopranos characters who like gets mad because they feel like their honor is being disrespected. They do something stupid and self-destructive like that. I, I mean, this idea that people have that like that empires never do anything that's bad for their own interests is just bizarre to me. Like they have a uh, this, you know, like, like, I don't know. I mean, like, do you think the uh, like, do you think like the invasion of Iraq ultimately ended up serving American interests? I mean, I think this comes down to like a very concrete uh, fact, which is the majority of the left, even elements on the academic left, but, uh, 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 but you know, like a lot of people commenting on international relations don't have at least, I guess, even a kind of peripheral uh, knowledge of how policy is actually 
formulated and executed of how things function concretely within, you know, the apparatus of a, 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 a capitalist state. There is very often a kind of, um, what, how can I put it, a, uh, a kind of big picture, very simplistic notion of, of, of how that power is exercised, which is seen in almost a conspiratorial sense, rather than understanding, like, actually, you know, a, a lot of these decisions, you know, there are factional fights within the bureaucracy. There are different groups acting for different reasons. There are different reasons why my, uh, people might support uh, one particular war over another particular war. Uh, and there, there is not this kind of master brain taking place. If we look at the history of the CIA, for example, you know, uh, a lot of people on the left will point out to, uh, will point out all the kind of coups and things that the CIA were involved in or, uh, orchestrated, which is certainly true. But that ignores the fact that a lot of CIA operations ended in like ignominious failure because of incompetence, lack of knowledge, lack of information. Now, there are parts of the world where the United States has, for example, a deeper institutional and historical knowledge at such places like Latin America. But, you know, then you have places like the Middle East where a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, American policy was kind of haphazardly developed on the uh, on the ground. There was no real big picture. There were groups in there who were primarily interested, not particularly in looting Iraq, for example, for its wealth, but, you know, grafting and looting money from the American taxpayers uh, with their big contracts. You go to Northern Virginia, you can see all the mansions that were paid with uh, for U.S. military contractors as well. There isn't this kind yeah. of, like, overbrand that is like running this great conspiracy in this world. Rather, you have this like grotesque imperial power with multiple like nodes in it, not all of whom are working in concert. Sometimes these, sometimes as in the Middle East, you see them kind of subcontracting or taking the advice of regional powers who are able to whack, you know, the, have the, the dog wag the tail, uh, sorry, yeah, the tail, tail wagging the dog, dog. Yeah. tail wagging dog, where you have like, America doesn't have the expertise, but if Saudi or Turkish intelligence says, oh, these guys are good guys, they're like, okay, we'll, we'll support these guys. And then you end up with the, the United States, uh, you know, supporting two sides in a conflict. And that's not, because there's like, ah, it's a conspiracy theory to like do two sides in a conflict. <laughs> no, because it's like, it's like you have a factional fight within uh, the bureaucracy. If you look at the Iraq war, I'll give you a very concrete example. I recently read a book by the CIA station chief who was in Kurdistan prior to the Iraqi invasion. And you had the CIA doing, well, according to him, and obviously he's trying to like make himself look sure amazing. But according to him, he was there. He was like, doing his operation uh, uh, to like build relations with the Iraqi Kurds so that they could open a front. The, the he was having contacts with people in the Iraqi military who wanted to defect. But then the, then according to him, the MOD, uh, the, the department of DOD turned up and the military and Rumsfeld, they had like a different agenda and they messed up his operations. And, you know, there was this whole factional fighting that State Department was telling them that the Turks are going to allow American troops to go through their territory. And he's like, but nobody had asked the Turks. And why would the Turks allow Americans to go in and support like the Iraqi Kurds because they're hostile to them? So you have like these whole levels of incompetence 
uh, and factional fighting uh, within, uh, which gets translated into a policy which is executed in an extremely clumsy way. And there are groups that are very much benefiting from this, right? Uh, they're getting these contracts, they're getting these money, but, you know, they'd be trying to get those contracts and money anyway. So I just don't think the, ex the exercise of imperial power takes place in the same, in the way that many people imagine it to do. That's not to say that it's good. Or sure. That, like, or, or we should say, oh, well, you know, like, no, it's, it's, it's to say, like, if you want to understand something, perhaps you should, like, really try and understand the reality of it rather than trying to get it to fit in your pre-existing uh, notion of how things are done. Does that mean conspiracies never happen? Of course not. Does that mean that there aren't intelligence operations taking place around the world? No, that doesn't mean that. But that doesn't mean that, uh, but, you know, at the same time, that doesn't mean like every protest that takes place in the country that is hostile to the United States is somehow a CIA operation. That is basically just a conspiratorial view of history, uh, which is a kind of like, I don't know, it's like, it's like anti-Semitic uh, conspiracies, but shorn of the anti-Semitism. It's like the Protestant ethic of uh, capitalism. You know, capitalism ends up being shorn of the, the, the ethic ends up being shorn of the religious values, whereas you kind of get, get the kind of anti-Semitic uh, worldview, except it becomes secularized in this kind of paranoid delusion because, of course, people are reaching for a way to explain things and a lot, and because liberalism is hegemonic, it's so often uh, viewed as a kind of moral uh, issue, as being like, there's these bad people doing bad things, which there are bad people doing bad things, sure. but there are also these huge institutions made up of a whole load of people who are just, quote unquote, doing their job and find all kinds of justifications for uh, what they're doing because they don't you know, necessarily see the outcome of what they're doing. They're focused on other things, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, it just seems like, it just seems like almost a childlike, I, I yeah, think. I, yeah, I mean, like, I think you could have, like, you could understand, like, you know, from, I mean, again, it's not a moral judgment, but just as a realistic assessment of, of how these things work, that, like, from the perspective of Russia's own imperial interests, uh, they were very concerned about NATO expansion, uh, saw, you know, saw that as threatening. They, they had, uh, they uh, obviously have these, you know, various outstanding issues with 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 Ukraine, as you know, uh, you know, regarding the Donbass, etc. And um, and uh, you know, and and I think that you know, my, I mean, I would imagine that you know that that Putin thought that you know that that he could uh, sort of escalate threats and and get some concessions on these issues, and uh, and when. And and when his bluff was called, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, you know, like, like he, you know, again, went overboard in this sort of gangsterish way that, that, you know, severely undermined Russian interests that led to a massive expansion of, you know, Sweden, you know, uh, you know, NATO, et cetera. Right. You know, but, uh, but, but I, I, I just, I think there's this weird assumption that people make that, um, that everybody that like, you can't be the head of a major state and also do something irrational. And I just want to know why not. 
Yeah, or do or, or, or take a gamble that seems like logical, but doesn't work out in practice. Not everything is unfolds but, according to a pre-existing plan. Yeah, especially if you're surrounded by yes men, you know, <laughs> uh, and and uh, and you probably don't have very many voices in the room saying actually this could go really really badly. Think about this a little bit, Vlad. I mean, if you meet people who have exercised real levels of political power. Mm. They're not very, like, you're like, oh, like, they're not the super geniuses, evil geniuses that people think. There's an enormous amount of mediocrity in the, the ruling class, right? Yeah. Um, mediocrity, lack of imagination, lack of organizational skills and inability. I mean, the more you look behind the curtain, the more you realize, you know, things are very often motivated by petty agendas they're motivated by things that you wouldn't assume uh, would uh, motivate them there are these huge economic and political forces of course which which you know constrict the choices of individuals but you know let's be real about how the actual ebb and flow of these policies in fact realizing that uh, you know so much of this imperial policy is formulated in a haphazard and contradictory way is even more terrifying because, you know, if there is a master plan, you know, yeah, there's something reassuring about that. There's something reassuring that like, well, you know, they wouldn't let us get nuked because, you know, that would be against their interest. They don't want to get nuked. Blah, blah. It's like, yeah, but what if they just like make a mistake and somebody overreacts and then boom, you're in an absolute fucking uh, uh, shit show. Right. And uh, we, you've been kind of, you've been escalated in a direction that, you know, then you have a whole load of forces which like continue that uh, escalation in a, in, a, in a direction that is not beneficial. I mean, so like, totally, what, uh, I find, what I find uh, terrifying is the fact that this, this is like the heart of like the global imperial system is absolutely demented and uh, at war with itself. I mean, it is, yeah. I, I mean, it is worth thinking about how many of the wealthiest and most uh, politically powerful and well-connected people in the world fell for like Elizabeth Holmes or SBF. Right. I mean, it's not that they're necessarily stupider than the average person, but I remember, I'll tell you a story about deep state Cuba. Deep state Cuba came to visit Missouri and gave a talk about, uh, you know, like, working for the contracts and how contractors work and how the U.S. government does things. And his basic conclusion was like, honestly, guys, you know, it would make very little difference uh, to the way American policy works, whether they, like, do as they do, recruit from kind of elite or sub-elite universities on one hand, or if they just, like, went to, like, any university across the U.S. and got, like, half decent students and just told them what to do. So it's like, it's not that much difference between what you guys do, but what's the X factor is like, do you have the connections, right? Do you have the, uh, do you have, do you have uh, the things that you, you know, that do you know the right people to get you the right job? Yeah, no, no question. I mean, I, I don't know. I remember like, yeah, you know, I mean, in a very small way, um, 
relative to, you know, to my particular brand of, uh, of academic elitism. Like I, I got a little sense of this when, you know, during those years when I was living in New Jersey, I was an adjunct at Rutgers, which is one of like, I think it's ranked as like the number two, uh, philosophy graduate program in the country. Um, uh, right behind Princeton. And, uh, and so, you know, I was working there as an adjunct for a few years. So I would like hang out with, you know, professors and graduate students, of the program. And, you know, I, and look, I mean, I went to the university of Miami, you know, but like, um, it just getting a sense very quickly. And if anybody from Rutgers is listening to this, I think you personally are a very clever person. I'm not talking about you, but, um, it's like, Oh, right these people aren't actually smarter than anybody at Miami. They just like went to a better undergrad college or something like, like, and I, I don't even mean they're not like smarter in some deep sense. Like just even in terms of like the sorts of things that are rewarded by um, that academic system, sort of, you know, quick on your feet, et cetera. They weren't even any better at that. Like that's, it's just a, uh, you know, I, I mean, it, it just, uh, there's a lot of sort of the, the prestige stuff that's like, yeah, there's a baseline. But um... there's a baseline. Yeah, I mean, there's a baseline. There are like certain skills, perhaps, that you need to have in academia. You need to be able to do certain things. But like beyond having those basic skills, you know, a lot of who you think is a smart person and not a smart person it also comes down to personal taste and whether you agree with them or not, right? Yeah, no, I, I think there's there's definitely some of that, right? You know, but it's like. I can, you know, even just sort of, yeah, who can like come up with a quick counterexample or whatever. It's like, it, it's just, um, it is sobering to realize that it's, it's not, it's not that different. And, um, and, you know, I, I've I also, you know, will say similar things about just, just regular undergraduate students having taught at a wide variety of places. Like, uh, again, there's a baseline, there are certain skills that you need to have to be able to do these things. But, um, I, I think that the sort of mythology of American meritocracy uh, ends up seeping into a lot of our brains, even if we don't consciously believe it. <laughs> and, it's, uh, and, you know, and it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of, a lot of, it, a lot of it comes down to branding. Heck, a lot of success these days in academia comes down to branding, uh, whether you build your personal brand, whether you build, you know, whether you do X amount of, articles or your book sells well and things like that i think you know there's a a lot of it is is appearance now obviously there are certain fields where this is less true scientific fields and certain things where there is a where there is a certain but i think definitely in the humanities in the social sciences and all of these things you know uh, a lot of it because ultimately it's a very concrete political question to any of these humanities and social sciences and so having, you know, being able to talk the language and, you know, like there's a whole range of types of intelligence that come in handy, like being empathetic, being nice, being, you know, being able to being charismatic. Those things maybe count as much as being having an ability to like write concisely or doing some innovative research, things like that. You know, it's it's it's. it's and so when we, you know, transfer that to like any element of the ruling class, it's like, you know, often you you hear uh, some elements of the uh, left simultaneously make the argument that um, these ruling elites are both dumb but also masterminds. 
really is that they're, they're neither. They're mediocre, pursuing yep. their own class interests, uh, following their own ideological, um, their own ideological, uh, you know, preconceptions of the world, and executing things in a way that a lets them sleep at night, and b um, you know advances their position. And you know, there's a whole host of factors that shape people's policies. Jason, uh, Jason Miles from This Is Revolution, he always makes the point: it's like everybody's always calling their opponents grifters, and it's like, yeah, sure, there's going to be some, there's going to be a proportion of grifters out there. So sure. I think the, major, the majority of people who are getting called grifters, it's just like, it's just you don't like their opinions, and you might say like, oh, their opinion is motivated. Uh, by a certain class interest or ideological interest that they have, but that's probably not how that person views what they're doing. I think the actual, uh, you know, concrete grifter, grifter, uh, for example, in left media or in, or, or, or for once, I think they're like very rare. I think, you know, the problem well, is, I, I think I the think issue so. is more than, is that, you know, people like have really big disagreements over each other. People have like, uh, I think you told me this yesterday off air, was, uh, you know, people need to, like, justify their personal beef with some kind of ideological skin to it, yes. you know? I, I, I see this all the time, and it drives me crazy that, like, people, like, if leftists just have fallings out, then, like, it has to, uh, they have to interpret it as some, like, grand point of principle at stake. You can't just have a beef with somebody. You know, it uh, it has to be. It has to be like that person's like not a very nice person to work with, and they were kind of a dick to me. It's not that there's like a fundamental ideological difference. It's just like you know, sometimes people don't get on. Sometimes it's not even any really anyone's fault. Not everybody can be like get on with one another. So I think you know, I think I think we have this very childish way. Well, yeah, and it is, and it's childish and too like opposed but simultaneous ways that you just identified one is that um everybody um you know one is every stupid little beef you have with somebody that you thought was a dick to you and you know you don't like working with or whatever uh you have to interpret as being politically important in some way uh but at the same time uh, you exclude the possibility that anybody actually just disagrees with you because, <laughs> like, you assume that everybody, you know, anybody who's who's ever, uh, you know, tried to professionally be a bigot or semi-professionally be engaged in political commentary who has one opinion you disagree with is automatically a grifter, which just, like, excludes a priori the possibility that there are some people who um, – who just like sincerely think stuff other than you do, like either about sort of substantive ideological opinions or about, you know, tactical or strategic issues. Uh, and, you know, often it like a really very, like, I don't know. Some of the examples are really funny to me. Like I'll, I'll just mention, um, I don't know, like a couple of weeks ago, somebody was like mad at me cause I'd done that debate with, uh, with, with Curtis Yarvin and they were trying to, um, say oh you just did this you know because it was that that unregistered weekend in chicago you know it's like you just co-hosted this you know what well, must have been a very lucrative weekend it's like motherfucker i will list off for you what i got for doing that right like materially they paid for my ticket at a night in a hotel one night uh there was some co- there was some coffee before the debate 
Uh, okay, to be fair, I think there was also donuts. I think I also had a donut with the coffee. But um, they're literally I, paying you in donuts. <laughs> you know, it's it's like um, I I don't know. I I think I uh, I think I. Um, I mean, like at least give me credit for uh, for for holding out to to sell out for more than that. But um, yeah, I, I I look. I mean, and none of this means there are no real grifters. Dave Rubin exists, etc. But um, but but it, it is it is a bizarre. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote the Hitchens book that I I think like I wanted to sort of think um, think harder about this sort of interesting high profile apostate and like and, and sort of have and like actually kind of try to like sympathetically get inside the head of somebody like that and think okay well i abhor where they went but like can i actually get like a decent read on how they got there that's not just sort of uh, uh must have sold you know must have done it you know to get on cnn or or else like uh, there's, a lot less mo- there's a lot less money flying around than people think and you know at the end of the day this belief that whether it's like everybody everybody you don't like on the left is getting paid off by someone, A, or B, they're working for the intelligence service. At the end of the day, it's actually like a, a bit of self-delusion and uh, self-aggrandizement to believe that the forces of the state are so intimidated by, I don't know, your uh, blog, podcast, or YouTube video that they um, that they would actually waste resources on, uh, on, on on trying to you know infiltrate you and do things like that well, that, that, was, they... that was the, the call like yesterday uh, when, when jace was on the show i remember one of the you know the callers said um something about how like you know they were like they were attributed this whole strategy to the democratic party that was all about marginalizing the left and it's like man i wish uh, the state of the balance of forces on the ground was such that they really did lose sleep over how they were going to marginalize the left. Right now, I'm afraid uh, I, I don't think that that's a major consideration for them. But uh, I don't want to uh, I don't want to let this drift to uh, overly depressing territory. So I am going to. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I know we had a caller who was in and out of the queue. I'm not quite sure what happened there. If they're having technical difficulties, but I am probably going to. Um, cut it more or less there for today i want to remind people that uh, exactly silver this Sor- soros checks are a lot smaller than people think um you know they're uh so i want to remind people that uh not not mean gene sadly but uh but a couple of his this is revolution colleagues are going to be in new york on january 22nd two weeks from today uh, at the cutting room uh, for uh, the uh, This is Revolution slash GTAA slash uh, Left Reckoning live show. Uh, there is a link to that in the description for this episode. Um, and uh, also uh, check out the uh, the, the Substack uh, if uh, if that um, if you uh, there's a new essay up today. If uh, if if you see uh, any errors, it's primarily the fault of Gene Bajalon for not catching them when he uh, he read it over for me. Hey, you uh, sent it to me at like one in the morning, so <laughs> I, I did. It was really bad. No, I I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, no, I was I was above and beyond the call. But in any case, um, 
Jid, uh, TIR's uh, not Tuesday, but it's on Thursday. Yeah, yeah, it's on Tuesday. It's on oh. Tuesday. On Tuesday, there is an interview. I think it's an interview I did. I think it's about Turkey and the upcoming elections. And then on Thursday, uh, on, on Wednesday, me and Vaughn are talking about uh, Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson. On Thursday, Jason and the boys doing the news show. On Saturday, I don't think we have a guest, but we, uh, but uh, I think I think uh, Jason has plans for that show. So we have an action-packed week. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, we're heading towards Jason's dream of being able to splooge content every day of the week. So getting there slowly, slowly. Well, that is beautifully put. Uh, <laughs> uh, um you know, much, uh, a much more moderate amount of splooging going on, uh, at GTAA, but, uh, Adnan Hussein and Harvey JK are going to be on tomorrow night to, uh, to talk about the Marxist theory of history. Matt McManus is going to be on the post game, uh, talking about, uh, Curtis Yarvin, who he has of course been researching for an article also because he is masochistically committed to, uh, to, to reading, uh, everything that all these, uh, creeps, write. Uh, so looking forward to all that. Uh, thank you again for coming on.